All right. Good morning, everybody. You are listening to the Mist Eye podcast, Into the Cauldron. I'm Chris, as your usual host. And today I have one of my absolute favorite guests, a person who I'm sure really needs no introduction. Um, his work on ceremonial magic, especially, is absolutely monumental. Uh, it's been instrumental in my practice and I think for a lot of other occultists in general. I don't know what the ceremonial landscape or modern occultism would really look like without his work. Uh, he's also done a lot of work on feng shui and a, really a lot of ma major Western books on feng shui uh, are, are very, very excellent in themselves. Um, so I'm sure this is a man that has been requested time and time again. Uh, but Dr. Stephen Skinner um, is with us today. And I'm really, really excited. Stephen, hi. Hi. <clears throat> Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to, to talk to somebody like yourself. Oh, thank you. Yeah, what well, <laughs> um, Yeah. So I mean, this is this is just I, like I said. I, we were just talking before I uh, before I yeah, started recording this, and it is all a bit surreal for me because uh, I, I, I I don't know if you can see actually, Steve, but I've got like a bunch of your books on the bottom of my bookshelf behind you, uh, behind me here. Um, so it is all a bit surreal to me because I, I I've been following your work uh, for a very very long time, uh, and it, it is it really is I think one of the best reconstructions of ceremonial magic uh, that I've found. Thank you. Um, it's absolutely incredible. It's yeah, I, it's one of those things. Um, ceremony. How would you, as as a whole, do you think, if, for people who have never heard of you or your work or ceremonial magic, really, what what would you sort of, how would you introduce it to them? Do you think? Well, any kind of magic is is interesting. Um, the thing about magic is that it's a method. It's mm. not. It's not woo woo. It's not fantasy. It has various steps. If you carry them out, um, I was going to say religiously, but that's not appropriate, um, then you will quite often get results. And once you've got the hang of it, then you will get results 80 to 90% of the time. Mm. And that, that's as good as any scientific experiment. Um, my father-in-law was a professor of chemistry, and uh, at one stage he said, well, it's true that 10%, 15% of the time, reactions that you expect from it don't happen or they fail. So um, magic and science have got about the same the same score. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, this is I think this is where, you know, in my opinion, because I've, I've, I've sort of come at this from two different ways. I, I started uh, with an academic background. And when I left academia, I started, I kind of, I hugely went the other way. And I just went, stove straight into spiritual communities, occult communities. Um, but a lot of the early communities that I dived into, spiritually speaking, were all very kind of new age. We were, they were talking about the law of attraction and manifestation, all that kind of thing. Um, and again, I, I'm sure some people will get results with that kind of thing. I'm not going to knock it, right? I'm, I'm not like that. But for me, magic, especially ceremonial magic, uh, is something that I keep coming back to because it is such a logical system. And people, I don't think people give that enough credit when, when you hear the word magic or in popular consciousness, right? We, we tend to think that it's, it is very woo-woo or it's kind of a, a yeah. precursor science or something. Or worse than that, it's a sort of psychology that if you leave things up on your mirror and think this and say it uh, twice, mm. uh, 15 times before breakfast, then something will happen. Well, if you're focusing your mind on something and you do those those sort of um, operations, then your chances of being improved. You're more likely to get a job if you've been thinking about it and concentrating it before going to the interview. But they don't have the one-to-one the -one effect that um, magic has. Mm. because uh, you and I as human beings have got a limited number of powers. 
You just mm. can't do many things that are sometimes talked about as magical. Yeah. Uh, because magic depends on entities. It depends upon spirits, demons, if you like. Um, and if you can persuade them or compel them to do what you want them to do, then it will happen. Because mm. they do have, obviously, you can't demolish a cliff or fly to the other end of the world instantly or so. Sure. There are a number of things in the, the grimoires which sound extraordinary, mm. but actually do work. Uh, and that's something yeah. that continually gobsmacks me. Yeah, I think, well, I, I suppose this is, this is an interesting sort of in, interesting question about how how results manifest, I guess, or how we can sort of attribute results. Because, yeah, you look at a lot, of, a lot of the, especially the medieval and renaissance grimoires, some of them do have pretty weird results. Uh, pretty weird result pretty weird operations you know there are ones for we have everything from invisibility i think in i think it's the cambridge necromancer manual uh there are a bunch of ones for like making illusionary castles and feasts appear out of nothing by a by a spirits or demons stuff like that i can't say i've ever succeeded in any of those yeah <laughs> but i have succeeded with invisibility and uh talking to animals oh wow so, for example with invisibility um I have walked into a major department store. Lots of people have almost run into me because I'm just not there. And <laughs> wife, my wife has walked past me looking for me. Where is he? Where is he? Looked me in the eyes almost and kept walking because she couldn't see me. Um, it, wow. it's, not, it's not the 100% invisibility where you yeah. uh, walk into a police station, pop something on the desk and walk out again. That, that's right. Not going to happen. Hmm. But as long as you slow your breathing rate and uh, stop thinking, and you do have to stop thinking to be invisible, hmm. um, then then it works. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we get we, there, are, there are. I think invisibility. I don't know because when you when when you think of magic, and I suppose this is one of the big things that distinguishes. I guess what we could say. I don't know if I would class it as low magic, but I guess sort of goetic magic. Uh, from something like theurgy, whereas a lot of the goals of, of sort of what we can say is, um, I don't know what the best way to describe it would be, but regular magic are, they're very mundane goals, right? And they have, there are lists of mundane goals, whether it's invisibility, money, fame, power, love, anything like that. They are sort of very consistent human goals. Whereas you look at something like theurgy and it's very much more kind of apotheosis, you know, transcendence, connecting with the divine. Um, and there are various different, sources or where that comes from some people say it's from the mystery traditions i think i think i think you've argued that uh in a certain uh, manner of speaking isn't it that theurgy is a descendant yes. of some mystery traditions theurgy and magic are not the same no so many people particularly academics use them as interchangeable words mm. uh, and they're not magic is concerned with the the, the human concerns with money sex uh, girlfriends and can achieve those things. And usually, um, if you're doing using a spirit, it's going to happen within a week or 10 days. These people who say, oh, well, I did this, and six months later I got the job, or six months later something happened, yeah. that's fan fantasy. That's not mm. magic, you know, or that's good luck or whatever. Um, because the results of, of real magic happen fast. Mm. To do magic, you've got to as it were, pull down or pull up a spirit, an entity, and command or persuade, depending on which way you, you play it, hmm. them to do something. 
and then it will either fail successfully, it will either succeed successfully, or it will fail dramatically. Yeah, we'll certainly know about it one way or the other. Mm. It's a bit devious that way. But theurgy is the opposite. Theurgy is to take your own um, spirit, if you like, and raise it to the level of the gods. Mm. And that's what theurgy was originally concerned with, um, talking face-to-face with the gods. Mm. Theurgy is very rare, the number of theurgic rituals. In the um, uh, the um, Greco-Egyptian papyri, there are only about three rituals which are actually theurgy. Uh, yeah. One particularly, as you know, because you've... Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few. I think we have the very, I, I think, personally incorrectly named Mithras liturgy. Um, very, very incorrectly gone. named, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's always an interesting one. I, I, I mean, who is it Who is it that came up with it? Is it Betts when he was translating it? or is no, it? No, it was a guy before Betts um, whose name I can't remember. Right. That was simply yeah. because at one point Mithra is mentioned as a god. Right. Big deal. That doesn't mean it's a Mithraic uh, liturgy. Yeah, and people have. Yeah, they 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 really sort of go hard on the whole thing that it's part of some Mithraic mystery cult initiation. But again, like I, again, I, and the thing with it that always kind of is interesting to me is that it, like Mithras is mentioned in conjunction with Helios. That's the thing. He's not even mentioned by himself in the same way that Helios is conjoined and syncretized with hundreds of other deities throughout the PGM. And when you read uh, the section that mentions it, it's as a like a, a recall of a previous event, a lot of the thing, isn't it? It's something that happened in the past. It's not yeah. what's currently happening. Yeah. And what's currently happening is the the, the Magus or whoever is instructing his daughter mm. how to do it, how to raise up to the level of the um, the pole goddess or whatever else and mm. communicate with them directly face to face. And that's a very rare and very difficult operation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's probably one of the. It's. It's definitely one of the more complete and longer papyri. I think in 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 the Greek magical papyri in general, it's quite a long one. But it is. It's. It's full of. I mean, it's. It's a beautiful. It. It, it is beautiful in and of itself. When you look at the whole thing, it's absolutely gorgeous. The imagery that you see. Um, but it is very. It is very confusing, and especially I think because I. And this is, I guess, the other thing that um, I like to dispel misconceptions about. We hear, at least in the PGM, a lot of the words and the ingredients that look kind of gruesome and morbid, they're code for actually fairly something else. easily easily obtainable, usually plant or all other substances, right? Um, and I think that kind of sheds a light maybe on some of the weirder ingredients in like the Solomonic grimoires as well um to a certain extent but I mean, have you found any sort of correlation between the code words in the pgm because they actually give it i think in the pgm don't they there is a, there is a papyrus yes it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek you know yeah this thing is actually just um i don't know peony or something um, yeah it's not uh, snake's blood or whatever mm. other ridiculous uh label but then some of them are actual identifications of herbs. I mm. mean, the the theurgy operation that you mentioned, the key herb is chemtritis. Yeah. And I know Betts doesn't translate it, does he? I think he has a word for it. Nobody knows what chemtritis is. But there's a very detailed description of what it looks like and where it grows and so forth. Right. I feel that if I had... Uh, uh, greater knowledge of her, yeah, the bot- like botanical knowledge, yeah. yeah. Then, or if somebody with botanical knowledge put their mind to it, they could actually figure out what it was. 
Mm. It's a plant that still exists and hasn't uh, been expunged from the world. Yeah. Well, there's there's also, I mean, this is this is a, a continuing theme as well, but um, psychedelics were probably involved, or well, they argued that psychedelics were involved in in, in mystery rites, and I'm I'm kind of on the fence about it. I know I know the 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 mysteries of Dionysus or the Dionysian mysteries. They would have they there is some argument that Kekaeon or whatever was somewhat psychedelic and hallucinogenic, something related to ergot. Yeah, because it, it's wine related, and then, you know when they're getting in that kind of ecstatic furrow of Dionysus, then that's what connects them to whatever um but i personally speaking i don't i think theurgy would give you the same well not the same experience as a psychedelic but i think it would give you an equally powerful experience visionary wise than just using a psychedelic yes. i think i think if you uh did the the fasting uh and and that sort of thing beforehand and mm. prayers and so forth then yes but um the way we and i I assume you as well live these days. Uh, sometimes I think a little push is needed. And mm. So that ritual can try to switch the push yeah. to get you past the, through the doors, as it were. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, I agree. And I, I do think that the OG was also related to the mystery rites. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, well, I mean, it's interesting because when we look at, I mean, the the it, it depends how uh, I suppose it depends how we define theurgy because like most, if you look at it even from an academic perspective, most of the discussion around theurgy is centered around the Chaldean oracles, right? So it, they they sort of argue it's a very Neoplatonic doctrine. It's it's assigned to Iamblich or Iamblichus at least really sort of makes it into a ritualized format. That's the sort of a common belief. Mm-hmm. It's all attributed to Julian the Chaldean, Julian the Theurgist. Yeah. Um, and the Chaldean oracles do, but what's, one of the things that I find really interesting in Chaldean oracles is that the Greek theurgia, so the actual Greek word for theurgy doesn't actually appear in the Chaldean oracles. The adjective theurgist does. So the ritualists are described as theurgists, but the actual word itself, theurgy, just doesn't appear in the Chaldean oracles, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, but we have, yeah, there are a bunch of, of well, what we could say are theurgic rituals in the Chaldean oracles. Now, then we argue, or the argument is to what extent does that relate to or have any semblance on original mystery traditions or mystery rites and that kind of thing. Yeah, because nobody knows what actually happened in Eleusis. Uh, I, right. I've been to Eleusis, which incidentally a lot of people say doesn't exist anymore, but there's an awful lot of uh, remains mm. there, a lot of temple there. Um, and I'm pretty sure that they used uh, psychedelic um herbs and uh it gave people an experience that they never talked about afterwards Mm. that's pretty amazing i mean politicians can't get people to not talk about something or other afterwards so it must have been pretty earth-shattering yeah the experience yeah it it isn't around anymore um yeah but i am lucas and the uh greco-egyptian uh, ritual that you just mentioned probably the closest that you'll get to having that experience yeah i suppose i suppose the well, if we're looking at 
mystery rites or, or mystery traditions as an like an initiatic or initiatic procedure. I guess the closest modern group would be something like Rosicrucianism or Freemasonry, but that idea of going through various grades or anything like that. But even then, modern Freemasonry doesn't really do any rituals anymore. It's more of a kind of rationalist or secularist society, isn't it? It's not really a thing whether there are, and even the Rosicrucians are a bit questionable with their rituals sometimes. But um, Then it's a question of which Rosicrucians you mean. Yeah, I suppose that's the other thing, whether it's all like the, the neo-hermeticist sort of Golden Dawn derived orders, or it's the, the 1600s version that came out with the Pharma Fraternatus and all that kind of thing. But even then, like that, even that's still a questionable text, I suppose. Um I mean, there are tons of arguments that they like the, the the Rosicrucian College or whatever laid this foundation for the Royal Society and that kind of thing and the big collection of academics. But even again, I I kind of take the viewpoint of that's again, it, it's I feel like it's in the same vein as like modern conspiracy theories. It's a really interesting story, but I don't know if there's any actual weight to it. It's a nice idea. Yeah, we can easily get involved in it, but I don't think it happened like that at all. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but I mean, I think. Well, I think I think one of the things that keeps things like that relevant, people keep coming back to it. Because uh, I mean, people even since the since all the Rosicrucian manifestos came out, you have a bunch of people, even from the 1600s onwards, coming out saying they are Rosicrucians, or they're 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 descended from a Rosicrucian order and the Rosicrucian Mystery School. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'd love to get your take on this. The phrase Mystery School really kind of gets to me sometimes. It's a bit annoying. Um, because you see it in so many new age and sort of new spiritual movements where they think that the the mystery traditions were schools about raising consciousness or you learned meditations and things in there. But that isn't really very accurate. No, I doubt that. Yes. I mean, you you can look at, um, say, Indian traditions where yoga can be taught in the way it's taught in the West, but it's Mm. more likely to be effective if it's taught on a one-to-one basis. Mm. Uh, Guru Kichela. Yeah. And I would imagine that uh, that was also true of a lot of the um, uh, theurgy. Like in that ritual again, uh, it's the, the Magus teaching his daughter, mm. not even his son, uh, what to do and looking back at what happened in a previous ritual. Yeah. It's more likely to be on a one to one basis, I think. Yeah, so like like master, like I guess uh, apprentice and master, or teacher and teacher and apprentice, or something like that, rather than like a big a grand school where everyone kind of gets invited and there's like assembly halls and everyone's learning meditation together. I think it's a bit, I, I don't know, I think it's a bit fallacical. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really like, I don't really like the idea of it, but um, I, I think people again, it comes down to people want that, that sense of community. I think when when you're talking about this kind of thing, because it's nice to have people with shared experiences. Um, well, think about the the, the Chinese model. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, Chinese magicians teaching their students will have students who come in and attend lectures and things, but then they will have one or two or at most three what they call indoor students who in the Chinese system will usually live in the same building mm. will receive the actual practical um, methods. Yeah, Everybody else receives the theory. So if there ever was a mystery school, I think it would have worked something like that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a good point, I think. And I guess it opens up a, a bit of a wider discussion as well about the, about the distinction between magical theory and magical practice. I mean, I'm, 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 now I'm saying it, I'm just basically quitting Crowley, I think. But um, like the, there is a bit of a, obviously, like if, even if we take the viewpoint that magic is a science or it, it, it's as close to a science as, it, as things are going to get, 
I think it does really kind of pay to, at least from a pra- even from a practice point, to learn both the theory and the practical methods behind it. Um, because I think you're not if you if you just if you just jump in and try and figure out all, all the practice without learning any theory or anything like that, I think it's you're going to extend your learn time for like decades, and you're just not going to get anything done. So let's look at what actually is science. I mean, nowadays mm. science is a bit of a holy cow. And yeah, it's people, become a bit of dogma. But yeah, people look at they think, well, what about the science on climate change? Well. Uh, my personal opinion is quite different because I used to teach climatology mm. but because um, that was my original degree is in geography. Mm. But um, science is not a holy cow. It's a method. It's just the idea that you, you form a hypothesis, you figure out something that might test it, you do the test, you collate the results, and then you say, oh, it wasn't true, or yes, it is true. People don't seem to be seeing that anymore so as crowley said the method of science the aim of religion you can apply that method to magic Mm. work out okay so i have a theory that um to do this i will need to call um the the spirit of mercury and for that i will need three friends and um this incense and so forth and so on and i will find the right how to do it in and I will go ahead and, and do it. Uh, then if it succeeds, you have something where you can say, okay, so this works, and this is a method that works, and this can be repeated with the change of the parameters, um, and we can experiment with it. Mm. That's being scientific. Now, the other half of Crowley's comment, the method of science, the aim of religion, I'm not quite sure that magic has anything to do with the aim of religion. Theurgy might have something to do with the aim of religion because it's coming face to face with a god, mm. like the god. Uh, but magic still is concerned with the, the the everyday things that people want, mm. and why not? Um, science is concerned with the everyday things that people want. You know, we didn't have transistor radios, we didn't have um, uh, flymers, you know, whatever. Now mm. we have. Uh, and the same with magic. Uh, there's nothing shameful about a common or garden objective because um, magic can actually satisfy quite a few of those common or garden objectives. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing, again, because when you, especially when you look at something like ceremonial magic, I, mean, I, I use ceremonial magic as an example because it, it's, You've done a lot of work on it, and it is, I think, one of the more structured approaches. Because again, if you look at, or maybe I should, maybe I should say high magic, there might be a better a better label for it. Because even um, and then it, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking about this um, with someone on a podcast the other week, actually. Uh, but even if you look at traditional witchcraft, so sort of the folk, sort of folk witchcraft, the people who are practicing it, the, the general sort of peasantry, the general peasantry folk. They wouldn't like their lives were hard enough as it, as it was, right? They they wouldn't be using something if it wasn't working. These are people who had to go out, plow the fields every day. They had to bring the necks of the chickens when they were coming in, all that kind of thing. If something wasn't working for them, they didn't really have time or the luxury of ignoring it. They would right? trash it. They wouldn't continue doing it. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. It's, um, it's one yeah. of the it's one of the arguments that I I produced to um, explain feng shui. Mm. You wouldn't find 
very rich businessmen in Hong Kong wasting their time and a lot of money hiring feng shui masters to do it for them because mm. they weren't actually producing results. Yeah. And that works high or low, you know, whether it's the hedge witch uh, looking for a particular insect or a particular herb. If it didn't work, they wouldn't continue to do it. Right. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. I was going to be facetious and say it's probably only politicians who continue to do things that don't work, but <laughs> that was just a meant as a side joke. Sure, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it's it's um I suppose it, it's if you know, even if you look at it from again from the Hedrick's Hedgewitch perspective, when you're in, they're using much more kind of natural, I guess we could say natural based or land-based ingredients, whether it's it's um, warts or plants or again, like you said, insects or anything like that. It's along the same lines, I, I in my mind at least, it's along the same lines as like a planetary association. In the same way that high high magic uses corresponding incense for certain planets, there are there's numerous bits of traditional law that say certain planets or certain uh, plants and fungi or animals and things are all ascribed to certain planets and it's all different planetary energies and that kind of thing. So it's the same it's the, again, it's the same methodology, I think, behind everything. It's just it's being expressed slightly differently in every culture. Yeah. The the categorization is necessary. Mm. I just stand in the middle of a field and say, I want this to happen, uh, shouted at the top of your lungs. You have to condition the space for the spiritual entity, demon, spirit, to be comfortable enough to come and actually listen to you and then maybe do what you ask it to do. So you do need uh, these correspondence tables, and Crowley did seven, seven, seven. Yeah, I, I amplified it in complete magician's tables. Yeah, I've got it back there. So it's again anyone anyone who hasn't uh, got the complete magician's tables, I, I would always recommend it. It's like it's it's like your handbook for, for all things magical. I think it's it's one of the biggest things I've used. Um, it's started because I got a little bit bored with Crowley's seven, seven, seven. It didn't cover a lot of things. And so I decided I'll just expand it. So I was using a spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then finally, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm like, okay, eventually this needs, this needs to be a book. And then <laughs> yes. and then the book got bigger and bigger. It's in its fifth edition now, and I'm not going to add any more to it than that. Yeah, I think I, I think we, uh, you can draw a line under it. I think, it's, I think we've done enough for it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but, but the information in there is useful. Um, yeah. Magic is based on those correspondences, right? I mean, this is yeah. This is um, I mean, I, I was I was reading Agrippa the other day. I was going back to my Agrippa, um, and that whole theory of universal correspondence, where like different correspondences, or at least down down here in the physical world, match up with what's going on in the celestial world and certain planets and zodiacs and that kind of thing, and then all that matches up with certain thoughts and ideas or whatever in the whether it's the divine mind or whatever it is you want to say if you take more of a hermetic perspective. Um, but yeah, the, the the theory of correspondence, and that's how how it works. It's different. I I assume, I guess, but I mean, we we can talk about the hierarchy. I guess the spiritual creatures here as well. Um, but different spirits are going to be assigned to different planets, which means they partake of the same. I guess. I, I, I mean, more, I mean, it depends on how you how do you see spirits usually. I know you said they're not. You're not. I, you sound like you're not the biggest fan of sort of the chaos magic approach of it's all in your head. Well. I used to run the Illuminus Club in London, uh, which, oh, right. which you've never heard of. But we used to do regular lectures. People like Colin Wilson, Francis King would come. Mm. Um, and some of the early chaos magicians also turned up. 
And so after, after these talks, they'd been nattering away in great detail, trying to figure out what turned out to be chaos magic in the end. So I was privy to some of the very early constructs of chaos magic, but I have to say I didn't follow it through. Mm. Like the, I like the the medieval worldview. I like the idea that there are many connections in this world because if there wasn't, we would just be flying apart in space. You know, the things are connected. Mm. Um, like Chinese medicine, uh, you take a particular herb. Well, no, any any herbal medicine. Take a particular herb; it affects your liver or your kidneys or your eyes or whatever. There mm. is a connection. So, if there's a connection with herbs, there's also a connection with incense. You burn the wrong. You you burn a Saturnian incense and try and invoke a Venusian spirit, and you will fail. Mm. So, how do you find out what you should burn? You look up a book of correspondences, like the the two already mentioned. Yeah. Um, and that much is scientific. Well, in fact, <clears throat> because it links up and it's usable. If you use the wrong thing, you put salt and chlorine together, you get nothing. You put um, chlorine and sodium together, you get salt. Mm. Uh, but you need to know that. So magic, you can't just go and do, oh, I want to do magic, which I hear so many people say. Or, yeah. How do I how do I quickly do this? I disappoint them by telling them you can't quickly do anything. Mm-hmm. You have to do, you know, it's like you can't quickly create a garden. You've got to do a lot of digging. You've got to decide what plants you want to plant. You've got to buy the seeds and plant them. And then you get a beautiful garden. Mm-hmm. You want magic to work. Um, you also have to do the, the research. And uh, mm-hmm. one of my reasons for writing books was that, I started off needing to get the information in one place for myself. Yeah. And I realized, okay, maybe this is useful for somebody else. Uh, and then it just went on from there. Mm. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm where you were when, <laughs> back then at this point, because I, I'm, I'm in this sport where a lot of, a lot of this, this, uh, this platform, this company that I'm founding is exactly kind of a similar idea to that. So it, it's finding, uh, sources for magic, especially ceremonial magic, but ones that are archaeologically backed and stuff as well, uh, and collating them into some kind of library. That's that's sort of the grand vision I have, where it's a PDF library or an online library, whatever it is, and just making the resource available for magicians online and accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, just digitizing manuscripts or digitizing everything and just having that kind of idea. But yeah, it is a yeah. I think. I suppose it's another question because it sounds when you when you know when you talk about all the different it reminds me of the whole doctrine of signatures thing that Paracelsus was on about. Um, but in a way, it does it does kind of sound like alchemy. You know, you're you're combining substances, um, or would you class? I mean, it depends. Would you class alchemy as a as a form of magic, or would you class it as its own sort of discipline? Thing? No, no, no. <clears throat> no. I think alchemy is a it's a physical thing. Mm. They, they were definitely interested in making gold. They were yeah. definitely interested in making the universal medicine. And both these things are physical. Um, I don't think they use very much magic. I've looked at a lot of stuff that Dee did with alchemy, and he was concerned with the right proportion, putting it together. Mm. Again, um, like chemistry. So actually, I uh, you may not agree, but I would ally alchemy with chemistry. Mm. I don't believe that alchemy was the forerunner of chemistry. I'm sure that it all grew up at the same time. Mm. But um, 
certainly the universal medicine will be much more useful than being able to produce gold. Yeah. And it's a pity if somebody doesn't get on with that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, especially especially you know again in all sort of the modern. I don't know modern spiritualist or modern sort of new thought ideas of alchemy. There seems that like, people seem to take heavily from people like Young and everyone like that, where they they think alchemy is much more a kind of it, it's designed around being a spiritual transmutation process. Uh, where it's, it's all, where actually all the alchemists weren't concerned with making gold or anything. Actually, it's all a thinly veiled occult metaphor for spiritual transformation. It's like no, I guarantee you, the alchemists were trying to make gold. They were. Everyone was very interested in doing that. I'm very interested in doing that. Right? I think most people are. Um, but again, I think yeah, it's an interesting point because it is. I don't know how much magic is involved in alchemy because i mean we have certainly in i, I don't know if it's in, if it's in the greek papyri it might be in the demotic papyri but we do have a lot of alchemical things in the in the greek magical papyri there are yeah. some on that that and, and zosimus and maria the alchemist right. and people like that mm. yeah but that that all they were drawings of, of um real flasks for distillation and things like that it wasn't yeah. all, there were one or two serpents eating their tail but um, most of it looked like real physical stuff mm. yeah well on that note then i guess the ouroboros because the ouroboros is itself a magical symbol isn't it i think indeed uh, it is the 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 precursor of the magical circle on the floor mm. um, i i sometimes wonder whether the ancient egyptians actually got a serpent live or dead and laid it round their circle. Yeah, so that's yeah. I mean, it have to it have to be a pretty big serpent, I think, right? If it was like, I don't know, like when I when I, I don't know, this is, I guess this is me projecting my modern practice back to them. But when I I when I try and build or construct magic circle, I like my space. So I generally go. I, I know the the lesser key of Solomon, or might just be actually, I think, just be the key or the clavicular manuscript in general. They recommend it being was it nine foot in diameter. Oh, that's right. Like no. I, no, that's a mistake. It's not nine foot in diameter. Oh. Nine foot in radius. Ah, okay. Which that makes more sense. Actually, eighteen foot across. And if you doubt that, you can look at the circle which I published in um, uh, Goetia, Doctor Rudd, I think, and you can actually see the nine foot marks going from the edge to the the center. The mm. and that, that's nine feet. And then yeah. the, the circles with the names and things in it is beyond the nine feet. So the complete circle is 20 plus across. And yeah. people, people don't believe me, but I, I promise you that is the truth. Yeah. Because so where, you where, where did that come from? Because I think I, you hear, like, you know, I know in a lot of modern, uh, modern translations of the Lesser Key of Solomon, they say it should be nine foot across. Yeah, well, that's uh, it's like some people also thought that the um, the triangle should be um, whatever it was, three foot in the air, but it's not. Oh yeah, uh, I, I always interpret it as being three foot from the circle. Uh, that's much more likely. Yeah, but look at the drawings; it's actually pretty close to the circle because yeah. you need at some point to to put the sword point across, and you don't want to be reaching right out. You want only the sword to go beyond the boundaries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I take the boundaries seriously. I mean, I've never, I've never done what Crowley did, which was to sit in a triangle, which I think is 
heights of madness. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. I, there is... If you believe there's any truth in the circle and the triangle, that's yeah. the last thing you want to do. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, yeah. It's, I mean, history, especially with magicians, um, you know, Renaissance and early modern history is rife with tales of magicians who step outside their circles, usually because the demon or whatever appears as some beautiful woman and then they run off chasing them and then they're never seen again. Um, Basically, the, the the least that will happen is you'll um, stop your magical operation. Yeah. Because you'll discharge uh, between the circle and outside the circle. Mm. Whether you also burst into flames and go to hell is another question. <laughs> get possessed. That's 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 always the uh, that's always the big one that people are afraid of, isn't it? That you're going to get if you step outside. Will you start any kind of occult practice? You are opening yourself up for dark forces and possession and that kind of thing. Well, the Christian um, hierarchy would like you to believe that so that you don't even start. Yeah, except the vast majority of the compilers of the Grim Laws were the clergy in the first place. Yes, because they knew that uh, they, well, they knew the real background. They weren't, oh, maybe they were afraid of going to hell. Maybe there's, mm. it's worth the risk. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, I think. Uh, I don't know the, the one thing that always. I mean, again, I was talking about this the other day, actually. But um, the one thing that's always struck out to me with high magic or ceremonial magic in general, if you're doing any sort of goetic work, um, and I suppose this also holds true for theurgy in, in a manner of speaking, but more so from you know if we're looking at sort of the clergy practice, um, ceremonial magic, especially if you're working with some red demons or if you're calling or invoking an angel or something like that, it provides you with what is effectively very direct face-to-face proof of divinity. And I don't think you can really say that for any other spiritual systems, really. Like that you have a lot of mystical systems or anything like that. Um, well, but none of them really provide a direct face-to-face contact. Mysticism is completely different from magic. Yeah. The goals of mysticism are quite different. I mean, it's one of the things that Crowley got a little bit confused, mm. that the two are compatible. I guess I was lucky because um, early on in my magical career, uh, when I was at university, actually, I did an education and I got um, a very clear um, uh, visual Mm. of something about the size of a fist, Mm. white orange, a face gnashing its teeth at me. And I wasn't on any kind of drugs, not yeah. even alcohol or not even coffee. This thing was so real, and it was beyond the the boundary of the circle. And was it was it like in was it in a scrying mirror or like an obsidian mirror, or was it like just just it was that hanging in the air like that and and snarling at me, like actually like that like actually just like a like a physical like a, manifestation, like it wasn't well, in like a mirror or anything. No, because it was orange. It, it looked like a large orange, but it had. Right. Eyes and I mean, you don't have to believe this, and you might. No, no, no. I think it, I think it's fascinating. But God, but when I saw that, I, I immediately uh, chickened and did um, a, a number of um, banishes, yeah. work, which didn't work. It just hung there for a long time, glowering at me, and I thought, oh shit. But I've learned one thing from that is that it's real and it works, and you mm. have to take the right precautions. Yeah. Most people are saved by not taking the right precautions because they don't actually get the evocation to work. Yeah. So that's why a lot of people um, still think about it as a psychological. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think there was, I, can't, I, I think, I think you might have been one of the ones to say this uh, at some point where um, 
where when you look at uh, a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the charismatic approaches where they think magic is all in your head or spirits all in their head uh, a lot of the time i think probably one of the main reasons that people like to think that is because they've only ever encountered spirits that are in their head yeah they've never actually succeeded <laughs> like for full-on evocations and it it also traces back to crowley who mm. um said uh initially that in his edition of uh, the goetia <clears throat> he said that spirits are actually part of your brain um i mean that's mad to start with not part of your brain not he might have been uh, acceptable to say part in part of your mind mm. but he said brain and um went on to justify it in terms of psychology because in the early 20th century everybody thought that it was, like, all, it was the big thing wasn't it, it was yeah. The, yeah and it was going to explain everything and Crowley thought it was going to explain magic and so he did a lot of his operations with that in mind like his version of the abramillion operation he only did i think the first three days or so before yeah that's, that's, that's i remember seeing one of my i mean i i have generally speaking i have two two main complaints of crowley and i know it's like it's almost considered heresy nowadays in modern occult circles to denounce crowley go, go ahead and be a heretic <laughs> <laughs> my two my two main ones are one and uh, it was someone I was talking to on a podcast raised this the other uh, the other week as well that was a very good point. I think Crowley in a, in a way was absolutely a genius in one in his own way, but I think his own tendency towards hedonism blocked him from gaining a lot of uh, traction or, or doing anything that was like ex like very transformative. I think he kind of leaned into his hedonism. Yeah. He a was bit too, much. too busy having fun. Yeah, carry any of the rituals through to conclusion. I mean, just right. That that's actually my that was my second complaint actually that uh, uh, about Crowley is that he it, never like, finished. It feels like a lot of his stuff isn't fully finished. Yes, and in the case of Abramillan, he said, "Oh, I completed it." Mm. Sitting on the horse, or actually, it was the donkey, uh, traveling up and down the uh, the really steep valleys behind what is now Assam, mm. and going into um, uh, China. You can't do that. Anybody who's, um, and, and I have been to Assam, so I know a little bit about this, um, you can't sit on a horse skidding down very dangerous pathways and concentrate on spirits. You can't call them. You can't charge them. Yeah. You can't do anything. And you certainly can't incense uh, them. Mm. So that is, and I have to call it out, that's bullshit. He never finished Abramelin. Yeah. And a number of other things he didn't finish, like uh, even even his 1904 uh, reception of the Book of the Law. Mm. He started with his wife, um, who he had just recently married, but who was obviously a good medium. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to show you the, I think it was the Undines, or maybe it was, anyway, it was one of the elemental spirits, mm. soft and gentle. And so what did he use to call that spirit? He used the... Uh, what is now referred to as the bornless one, but which in fact oh, that's the the the, the Akephalos rite. Yes, yeah, it's the the headless god out of the Papyri uh, Greco Egyptian. Mm. It's just uh, so it's worked on his basis that oh, it's all psychological. So if I just stimulate her brain by using a a, a very good evocation, then and if I say it's going to be undines, it'll be undines, and she won't know the difference. And that's, 
That's not said, but that was obviously going on in his head. Yeah. And he didn't call Undine's. Mm. What happened was later she got uh, contact with a, a version of Horus, I believe, mm. and um, instructions for doing other rituals, which Crowley said, oh, no, that's nonsense. We can't do that. Crowley himself then sort of backed off a little bit, and the wife proceeded to give the dates and times when he should go and receive reception of the Book of the Law. Now, mm. um, he says that he sat in a room and behind him, Awis was dictating. Okay. I am absolutely certain that behind him, his wife was speaking. And she. Okay, so you think, so you think I, I, Awas was, or she was channeling Awas? Uh, she was channeling lots of things, not right. just Awas. She was. The, the, the whole reception is bits and pieces from different entities, but that's mm. a question. She was channeling. And she was saying it out loud, and he was scribbling for all he was worth. Um, and then he couldn't say, oh, it was my wife gave me this revelation because he had to be the great magician. Yeah. So he said he just heard it. Yes, he just heard it. He heard it out of his out of her mouth. Mm. And uh, that's just unacceptable, don't you think? If you've got yeah. a good medium, you should acknowledge the medium. Yeah, you, uh, you should at least, at least as like a citation or a footnote or something. Yeah, know? yeah, and, and he didn't. Anyway, so oh, I've got a lot of things to say about the reception of the Book of the Law, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to save them because I'm going down to Palma to give a talk on this you know, ah. uh, on I think the, the 27th. Uh, it's an Italian occult conference. I'm probably the only English speaker there, and I don't speak Italian. <laughs> but there will be an on-spot translator who... Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, well, actually, this is an interesting point, actually, on, on the topic of translation. I think when it comes to any kind of occult or, or spiritual text or anything like that, when you're working with translations, I think it's always a challenge um, because the translator who's working with it they have to have not only a good understanding of the language but also the concepts yes. and things as well so they can choose the right words to translate the idea over yeah which is i think that's always a problem why the mithras liturgy got called the mithras liturgy because the right was thinking in that frame mm. um if he'd been thinking no this is actually a piece of theurgy then um, it might have come out differently. Mm. And for this reason, uh, when I started reading bits in translation, I realized that there's a lot of inconsistencies in there. Part yeah. of the fact that each, or not each, but a number of them have been done by a different translator who had different, yeah. different objectives. So I went and learned um, classical Greek or actually um the Greek of that period. Yeah, was it, isn't it from what I, from what I've seen? I mean, because I my original thing is my original lessons for Greek were in uh, were in Attic, uh, so I learned Attic Greek first. Um, I tried to learn Homeric Greek a little bit more because I, I like the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, but I think the PGM is mostly in like Koinic, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, Homeric. Well, life is too short to. <laughs> It's, it's it's like the the problem the real problem with it is that it's not so much the dialect it's just the meter of it that you need to get a hang of and that's that's the difficult part a lot of the time but yeah so I, I started in attic as well as you and then went on to Kryne because mm. that that's obviously what it's written in and, and as a side effect you can read the New Testament but yeah if you read roughly the same period um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you have to go back. And then when you go back, you see that 
um, there are about 60 different types of magic mm. in that man in that collection of manuscripts and uh, the translation is oh the following spell right spell or charm <laughs> or whatever and the following charm it wasn't a spell and it wasn't a charm it, it was you know to to bring um, a nubile woman to you who you'd spotted and you wanted to influence or it was but there was a separate Greek word for each of these operations. Mm. It means that the Greeks actually had a vocabulary of magic, which we don't have anymore. Right. Um, the same thing is true of, of Euclidean geometry. Mm. Uh, when uh, Dee collaborated with somebody who was translating uh, Euclid's uh, books, and instead of uh, looking in the dictionary, because there was no such word for um, a rhombus, they just use the Greek word. Oh, well, we call it a rhombus, mm. which is good because then you can actually go back and see where it came from. But with magic, instead of doing that, they called it a spell because yeah. it doesn't matter, does it? Because magic's all fantasy as far as the academics are concerned. Yeah. This, yeah, this, this, this is, this is continually been one of my major pet peeves uh, with academia um, in the, in, in just how, how it's become dogmatic. And you, I think one of the best examples of it is like, is hermetic texts usually. Um, Cause obviously we, we, when you look at, when you look at hermetic papyri as a whole, or the topic of hermetica as a whole, you, for a lot of modern scholars when we're studying them, we divide them for, you know, as you probably know, into philosophical or technical hermetica. And the, uh, quite a lot of the philosophical hermetica has been translated. It's the Corpus Hermetica, it's the Asclepius, it's uh, the definitions, the Armenian ones, all that kind of thing. Um, and they've all, been, they've all been translated, and then fairly well, I think, right? But you look at any of the technical texts in the hermetica, which are the ones that contain treaties on practical magic, on alchemy, on astrology, all that kind of thing, none of those have really been translated from Arabic in, into any of, the, any of the modern texts. And while, again, you can make the whole linguistic argument in that there aren't a lot of translators who speak Arabic and English well enough to translate the concepts over, there's still that underlying bias of no one really cares enough to translate them because it's just magic. And if you look at, because philosophy, you can still get a degree. And it's, it's, it's still a more accepted field in academia rather than magic and alchemy and esotericism. So all the philosophical ones have been translated because it's valid. And then all the technical ones, which are actually probably more interesting. And they're all safe, the philosophical ones. Right. They're safe. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Um, so you entered academia through archaeology, am I right? Yeah. Well, I went to take my PhD and they asked me, which faculty do you want? Religious studies, <laughs> um, history, or classics? And I thought, religious studies, no, thank you. Magic is not a religion. Mm. Um, so I chose classics. So yeah. to go away and learn a few or brush up in a few languages. Like your Greek and Greek and Latin mostly, yeah. Uh, well, Latin I did at school, but, you know, okay. that, that needed a lot of brushing. And, yeah. Uh, and the Greek, I went and took um, serious uh, Greek, Koine uh, Greek, or Attic Greek initially classes. Mm. Uh, and then I felt I could do it. And then uh, during my viva or whatever, they sat me down and they said, well, no, it was before they allowed me to even take it. Mm. Do, do you believe in all this stuff? <laughs> and I, I thought, I'm not going to fall into this trap. And I said, no, no, I just want to examine the um, progress of methods from the ancient Egyptians through the Greeks to Northern Europe. Mm. 
just the methods? Yes, yes, just the methods, and I just want to document them, which is, in fact, what I did do in my thesis. Yeah. Um, I didn't give uh, helpful hints on practical, and that I ended when I turned them back into books. Yeah. Um, and I had to tell that lie just to get on board, and mm. I'm on board now. Now I don't have a connection to a university. I can... I can speak. With yeah, you. you're not that. They can't. They, yeah, they can't. They can't exactly take your PhD away now, can they? <laughs> no. <laughs> At least I, I hope they don't change the rules. But anyway, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But you know, apart from that small pretense, I did say that I wanted to um, study the progress of magic right the way through from ancient Egypt till about 1700. Mm. And then the next objection was that is too wide a subject. So. Yeah. I can I, I can I can see that, but at the same time, go on. That, that's what I said. I said it, that I can see that, but the necessary connections had never been made, and that's mm. what I want to make. Yeah, uh, because the methods are the same. Mm. the The language changes as some of the um, the names of the entities change. Yeah, in Chinese magic, the entity names change quite a lot, mm-hmm. um, but. You can still uh, access a particular entity with a particular name, and and so I said no. I wanted to show the the transference of the technology, uh, right? As in Greek, the techni, you know, the, the techni, yeah, yeah. Um, and so they let me they let me pass on that, and, and <laughs> a few other more difficult questions. Yeah, well, yeah, you can you can take sort of a, I guess you I guess you could make an argument that you're taking a linguistic approach. So you're, you're you're looking at it from a sort of philological perspective. I, I, should, I should have, but then they'd say, "Oh, well, you're in the wrong faculty for that." So, I suppose, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So um, through classics, I got in. Fair but, enough. I mean, it all worked out in the end. That's, that's the main thing, right? But uh, yes, indeed, indeed. Yeah, I think um, I was reading. I was reading a book uh, the other day. I can't remember. I can't remember who's by um, Christopher. I, I, I could have pronounced the last name Christopher Placience or Placience. I think. Yeah, um, and it's on. I know. Gone. I, I I vaguely know him. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I I think he, I think he got his his masters or his PhD from Exeter actually. So that there when they when Exeter still had its uh, esotericism department. I don't know if they still do anymore. Yeah. No, but I, that's, I think that's where he originally got it from. But uh, he he wrote a book on uh, divine evocation in the Greek magical papyri. Um, so I guess the Egyptian Paneta, right? Um, so the appearance of the god. But it was really interesting because he he argues, at least in his introduction, there's a really interesting point where you really, when you're looking at magic, uh, you really, we can look at it from an essentialist definition or a linguistic definition. And the essentialist is sort of the very general viewpoint where it's just like you have like the basic three, like magic, charm, spell, anything like that. Um, whereas if you look at it from the linguistic definition, you define it based on the vocabulary that the magicians in a particular culture are using for their own things. So like when you look at the Greek, like you said, uh, all the Greek magicians, there are over 90 or different types of spells with their, with their own different head words uh, that tell you exactly what they are in Greek, and they all sort of break it down. And when you look at it like that, it really does become more of a technology. It does become more of a science because it's much more defined rather yeah. than just saying it's all magic or it's all a prayer or it's all a charm or anything like that. Different specific methods to create different specific outcomes. Mm. Again, like chemistry, you don't just put it all in the cooking pot and stir. 
Um, yeah. Otherwise, you get nothing. You mm. put in specific ingredients, and even then, in specific uh, proportions. Right. Yeah. It's 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 one of those things. I think, like one of the best. I think the example he uses actually, which is one of the best ones I've seen, is uh, the huge character issue around Cersei in 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 the Odyssey. Right. Because there is a huge, especially if you look at any sort of the modern neo-pagan things and Wicca, um, or any sort of modern. Hellenic paganism movements or anything like that, they they all hold very tightly to this idea that Circe is a witch, or that she is the titan or goddess of witchcraft or anything like that, which honestly actually more belongs to Hecate. But, but most people will identify that Circe is a witch. But you look at the original Greek in the Odyssey, the title that she's given is Polypharmakos. It's not witch, and Polypharma is just like or knower of was a knower of many herbs. Yes. Right. So she just just she just like she's a lady who who like either apothecist in the forest, right? Um, and it's it's so funny to me how interpretive Greek can be as a language. Because like you look back at some of the older translations from um you know, like the 1800s of of Homer's Odyssey, and you have things. Um, I think he, I think it was Ryu uh, who does one translation where he where he says that Odysseus is on his way to the witch's castle. And when he's going towards Circe, right. you look at the original Greek, and it's like, okay, one, she's not a witch, and two, it's not a castle, and it's actually a palace. But yeah. it's fine; we'll ignore it. But it's its own challenge, you know. Yeah, but then, unfortunately, uh, translators from even this era feel they can take any liberty with magic because magic's not a real thing, is it? Right. We can play around, and it's like fantasy writing, and it could be sci-fi. Um, from the Middle Ages, but it's not. Mm. It's 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 t- yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a science, right? So that's the whole thing. Um, yeah, and it's it's interesting because how I guess how, how all the different um, well, even again, if we take if, if we take the linguistic approach, because I've heard an argument that that or like a very interesting argument that theurgy as a whole, and again, even though we're not necessarily defining theurgy as magic, but as a practice, it's kind of grouped in as part of the agoge spells. Uh, or it, it, it follows the same sort of methodology as the Agogo spell because they're, they're love spells on I mean, it. They're, they're like the attraction spells, I think. Mm-hmm. And then theurgy is kind of a way of attracting a god to you in, no, a, in a manner of speaking. That's wrong. Theurgy no, I heard this theory. So, God, clarify for me. You are rising to the level of the god. Right. Theurgy is so much harder where you mm. can actually communicate with him. Minor spirits and demons, sure, you can attract to you, and then you might associate them with the agoge spells, but mm. not theurgy. Oh, mm. sorry, I'm 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 uh, taking a very specific point of view there because yeah, no, it's great. Oh, this, this this is the clarity that people need. I think it's the that's the whole point of it, right? Because um, I think the other because the other thing is when you look at um, I think I think it's Goetia. Isn't it's all all the like the root the Greek root of Goetia is the practice of the Goas. And the Goas I, I, I've seen some arguments that it's derived from I, I don't know if I call it necromancy, because necromancy is a, again another abused term, I think. Yes. Um completely changed in its meaning. Yeah. I think I think I think that I think it goes back to the Middle Ages, right? I think all the all the early patristic period where all the early church fathers were sort of they argued that you couldn't because um, I, 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 I think it's the, in, in the Middle Ages again got conflated with I think it's like nigromancy, isn't it? like the black art. Yes, and then uh, mm-hmm. they, they they just started applying the word necromancy to all kinds of spirit summoning rather than just the dead. Yes, because nigromancy and necromancy sound the same, but of course they're not. Right. Uh, 
And then you've even got modern practitioners who start saying that all spirits are actually the the ghosts of the dead, human, yeah. which is not true either. Mm. Completely different entities. Yeah, well, I, I guess, yeah, I suppose this is a, one that can help people then. So we we talked a lot about the different different kinds of spirits in passing, but there is a very sort of set hierarchy. I guess. Well, maybe set is the wrong word, but there is a, a stable-ish hierarchy to magical practice, if, especially if we look at the Greek magical papyri. Yes. Uh, in fact, the Greek magical papyri, um, in a way, demote a lot of the traditional gods to the level of spirits or entities. Yeah, I've noticed this a lot, especially the the Greek gods. They appear in a, a lot more what I would I would categorize or what I know as like Greek folk magic than they do in sort of classic Hellenic yes. paganism. Which surprised me initially. Um, mm. Where's where's the respect for the old gods gone? Yeah, yeah, because I think you don't. Because again, I think one of the things that is interesting about it is that, like you can def we can definitely see the Egyptian custom of threatening the god yes. uh, uh, into action almost, which is which I feel like is is it doesn't it doesn't make sense in our sort of our modern cultural context. Like people really have a hard time wrapping their head around the fact that in order to get things done, you need to bind the god or threaten it into action. Well, you may either coax it or threaten it, but you definitely right. have to bind it because yeah. once it is bound, it will come back when you call it. Mm. Um, um, yeah, I, I think I've got a lot of uh, practical evidence that that's the case. Yeah. And then people who don't bind it find that the, the operation doesn't work because it doesn't mm. feel constrained. It goes, hmm, that's interesting. And, and it just kind of walks off. It's like, yeah, okay, bye. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. I'm out of here, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose this is... Um, I, I, again, it goes down to the methodology, I suppose, and we can talk about this a little bit. Um, but I think every single thing is significant when you're doing this, these kinds of rituals, right? Because you ha you have to do the invocations to specific directions, especially and even at uh, like planetary times and associations and that kind of thing. So you do it at particular times. You use particular corresponding incenses. You do it to particular directions. But I think this is something you've mentioned before where, again, because people see magic as a kind of fantasy idea, they kind of see it as something like as like you can kind of imagine it as a cartoon where it's like you're reading an invocation in one direction, and the spirit will kind of just pop up and wherever it wants will pop up behind you and give you a fright or whatever. It's like no, like it, the, the directionality of things is part of technology. It's part of an ingredient. Yes, you should be facing the correct uh, direction so that it doesn't pop up behind you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because you, you have different um, different associations. I think, for example. Paimon in the Goetia or King Paimon, I should say. I hear he's, you know, from what I've heard other magicians say, he's a bit touchy about the title apparently. Yeah. Um, but he is he's usually considered a king of the West, but I think in the Lamegaton, he's considered Northwest. Mm. So the triangle moves. So there are tons of different associations for all the different cardinal spirits. Yeah, well, the, the number of variations. Um according to the number of scribes that mm. can, can't read what they're copying from in some <laughs> cases. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, I think Paimon is is one of the oldest, isn't it? Like, like he's one of the most consistent that I've I've seen in, in the Cardinal Kings. Yeah. Whereas Oriens is almost certainly a confusion between the Latin word for the direction he comes from. Yeah. So who, who, so or, Oriens is, yeah, I guess it's Orient, isn't it? Orientalis, which is East. Yeah. So who, who is the original Eastern king? Do you know? Yeah, Oreus. Oreus. Like okay. Egyptian serpent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then 
he comes from the east and then suddenly writing on the circle the direction and the name of the spirit the two got conflated i think that's pretty certain yeah so yeah i feel i could see i suppose because if you have on the inner the inner circle the latin for east and then on the outer circle the demon king i suppose you can yeah they look somewhat similar it's interesting one yeah i suppose because i mean yeah in terms of in terms of in terms of so if if we take sort of a practical point of view for a second when when you're sort of going into like what what is your your current ritual setup now i mean if you're open to sharing that is it so you have a i assume sort of the dr rudd circle that's probably one of your go-to's well, I've got a big 18-foot circle, but mm. not in London. Sadly, I have lived right. in my place in um, in Asia. Yeah, well, I gotta say because yeah, like especially in London, finding a, like a 20-foot bedroom in London, I can't imagine that's easy. Impossible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so you have, or I guess historically speaking, uh, I guess in this case, you have sort of the the big the magic circle. Then was that? Did you construct that and consecrate it? I guess prior to all the operations. Yes, this is um, thirty years back. I painted it. So you, so you're using the same. Uh, do you do you still use that same one for important operations? Yes, because yeah. it, and so I painted it with a friend. Um, he did the heavy duty backgrounds because it's large. You know, we mm. actually um, put it on Hessian and canvas. Yeah. So it survived and I, I painted the Hebrew and so forth. Mm. So we used that a number of times and I've used that since for the more important operations. Mm. Uh, yeah. Cause I've, I've read some, um, some more modern versions of the go of like goetic books, but they say that you should construct the circle new every time. No, you'd go mad if you had to repaint that circle. Yeah. That's, what, that, 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 that's my idea uh, with it. Cause it's a, it doesn't make sense. Like you can get a, a good stable one that's good lasting that I think the point because again if you're having to create it every time I guess you would have to reconsecrate it every time as well which is just it's just not practical yeah it's like the the sword or any of the other pieces of equipment mm. so much labor involved in producing them that you have yeah. better to stick with it so in the case of the circle um it folds up and I've, I've kept it all this time and used it a number of times yeah um, is, it, is it um how how important is color in this? Is your one colored or is it just? It is colored, but it's yeah. not important. Right. Uh, That's interesting. The, the, the important is the, the Hebrew names of gods, the sigils, the words. Magic mm. is very much involved in words. Yeah. And initially I thought, well, why should that be? But it, it actually is very much. Um, yeah, well, I suppose you can. We, we, I, I, again, I was talking with. There's, um, actually, yeah, where is it? Let me find. I, I was, I did, I was teaching a course the other day. We we're teaching a lesson, and we did, we covered the Chaldean oracles, and there is a section in there. Um, here we go. Yeah, because there was this passage, in, um this is just Majerix translation. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know how much you know about the Chaldean oracles. Um, obviously it's in the same way that there is the hierarchy of spiritual entities and you have these uh these figures the inges or the ingins depending on how you want to pronounce it um and they're kind of i i guess the best way i can describe them is like they're like the thoughts of the divine mind or the thoughts of the 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 father or whatever you want to say um 
But she makes a point of saying here, you know, for example, as the thoughts or ideas of the father, the Inges are, are actually magical names, the Bocas Mystica, sent forth by the divine mind or by the father as the couriers in order to communicate with the theogist. At this end, the magic wheel is spun as the theogist attracts the celestial Inges, uh, which then enable the theogist, who alone is privy to the divine language of the gods, to communicate directly with the divine mind. But the message communicated by the Inges is none other than their own magical names, which, when uttered, enable the theogist to acquire certain divine power. Yeah, because the the words and the thoughts, um, once they materialize into the... Uh, yeah, well, I think that's part of the reason, you know, when you look at all the divine names in, in the PGM, like when it's, it's really interesting having, having studied Egyptian first, and then looking at the the Greek divine names in the PGM, I can see that I can see exactly what's happening, and it's a Greek scribe trying to transliterate an Egyptian saying or an Egyptian word, and they're doing it phonetically. So you learned Demotic or what? Uh, well, I, I I I actually started with Middle Egyptian incorrectly. So my my first um, so my my first I, I did two years pretty much of Middle Egyptian. Uh, and then I went into late Egyptian and then I learned Coptic or how I've learned Coptic more or less since I left. And since leaving, I've realized I should have done it completely the other way around. And you should learn Coptic first, then late Egyptian and Demotic and then Middle Egyptian, <laughs> which is a lot easier, which is a bit frustrating. But I'm, I'm where I'm at now. So <laughs> it's its own thing. So, so tell me, what are you doing now? You say you were teaching. So is this part of your... Yeah. So, uh, well, I this thing. I left. Uh, I left. Well, I graduated back in 2020, pretty much, uh, or, or late 2019, I should say. Actually, um, then I went. I, well, I was going to go traveling for a year. I, I had this sort of big planned out where I was sort of. I planned out a bunch of different uh, magically and historically significant sites, Eleusis, all those kinds of places that I was going to go to. But then COVID hit, so none of that happened. Um, <laughs> But then, since then, I ended up joining uh, another company or another sort of um, a big sort of YouTube-based company, uh, and that didn't. And I was with them for sort of the past year or year, year and a half, and I was writing a lot of uh, YouTube episodes or just journal articles and that kind of thing uh, for them on certain spiritual topics. And then I went out, uh, and after I left them, and this was sort of fairly recently, two, two, two and a half months ago. I left them and then I went and founded uh, my own, I guess we could say, startup, um, my own business, my own platform. Mist Eye? Yeah. Um, which, and yeah, obviously, which is the Greek word for initiate. Um, well, I guess the attic, or well, the attic, but the Greek word for initiate in general. Um, and then, yeah, Mist Eye is, uh, it's, I don't know, because we only started like two months ago, like it's still, we're still figuring out exactly what it is. Uh, but at the moment I'm teaching um, courses and stuff on mat, well, on magic in general, but specifically sort of ceremonial magic. And I, like we're halfway through one course at the moment and I've done a lot of magical history, uh, mm. which is kind of interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a way of, well, at the moment I'm in this spot of getting different courses together. There's one on hemeticism, hemetic papyri. There's one on the, or this main one that we're doing, uh, which is on ceremonial magic or magic in general, going from sort of no background in magic whatsoever up to ceremonial. Um, I am also, the, the, it is kind of a more general one at the moment. Uh, so I am also throwing in elements of traditional witchcraft as well, because a lot of my 
even though my main my main magical practice, I came in through archaeology and came into ceremonial in the past year, year and a half, I've also dived into traditional and sort of, I guess you could say, sabbatic witchcraft as well, just to see what it's like and then that kind of thing. And it's it's kind of interesting, all the different uh it's like parts of it are very different, but also again, parts of it are very, very similar. And it's also kind of fleshing out my understanding of ceremonial magic and how spells work, I guess you can say, quote unquote. I really don't like using the word spell. Um but yeah, so I'm kind of I'm, I'm in a spot where I'm like just doing a lot of courses. Then at the same time as well, I'm collating together just a big library of whether it's grimoires, manuscripts, anything like anything like that to make it available for either academic study or practicing occultists to come and, and get access to all of these kind of things. Um, but it's a big job, you know. Oh, definitely, and it's going to take a long time before practicing occultists and academics get their act together yeah you know it's 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 i i have i have my dreams it's fine uh, i think that's a great dream you know however long it takes it'll be worth doing mm. yeah absolutely um so what other things do we want to talk about today and um well actually we have now burned up one hour and 20 minutes oh wow we really are going for it there you go um all right well we can start we can start uh drawing this to a close then i guess um I guess well, the, I guess the other big thing. Uh, so, if we were to sort of, I guess the last the last sort of big discussion, if we were to bring this back down to a very grounded, practical element, and we were to sort of separate out the stages of a ceremonial ritual. So, say for example, people uh, are coming into some sort of ceremonial magic or high magic mm-hmm. uh, for the first time, and they're sort of wondering what the general process is, all the different stages. Uh, can we elaborate on that? Do you think? So of a particular ritual or of bringing people into a group for that? Um, let's let's do with the ritual. I think let, let's say let, let's say you're working with a goetic spirit because I mean we can go back time time again. We can go back to you know the the we can go back to the PGM and the PGM has its own kind of practice yep. thing with it. But I think if we start with the Goetia uh, and the goetic ritual and then work our way backwards and see if we can wrap up with that, that makes that make good sense. Yeah, the, the pity about the PGM is that. Now do the usual. This is never specified. Right. Yeah. This is this is always the challenge, I think. Um, and we don't really, uh, we don't know what the usual is, which is quite frustrating. If we talk about a goetic ritual, so um let's see. Well, first of all, you're going to need to have the equipment. Mm. Um you may use a sword, you may use a wand. But you need to clear the space, and you don't, you can't work in a flat with other people there because if you yeah. get, if you get a, um, a successful evocation, you are going to cause trouble, mm. at least for the people on the same floor as you. If it's a multi-story, do you speak from experience? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, uh, my preference is to do it out in. Uh, well, I, I've done it in a couple of uh, old places. Like there was an old um, faux folly castle in Bath up on the hills behind, mm. which you you're nodding. Does that mean you know it? I've 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 heard. I think I've heard this story. I think I've heard you tell it before. Okay, so we we did a, a couple of evocations there, and that was successful because we were well away from uh, humans and. You can't hear the traffic noise and you don't want to hear these things. You just want to yeah. concentrate on what you're doing. Um, 
Alternatively, um, a large house, empty. Mm. Tell your relatives to bugger off for the, the whole night. Um, or uh, Steve Saibdow used to use a warehouse. Is- yeah, right. Because his his I think his uh, his new book on Guadalcanal vacation just got republished, and then for the next uh, another edition. Yes, it did. Yeah. So he's he's one of the the modern magicians who will work at it hard and take mm. risks, and and he has done so uh i've taken risks and had a few uh prominent disasters so you you've got to be well protected and i was certainly well protected uh with a, the my old 18 foot plus plus circle mm-hmm. and with various weapons that have been consecrated not not the four golden dawn ones but the, the sword is essential yeah uh, because it's iron and spirits mm-hmm. do seem to worry about being cut with sharp iron and I don't know why it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because I mean, you have, I don't know, it's really interesting because iron is always traditionally the metal of Mars, right? Yeah. But, so is there like a Martian association with it? Because even then, um, I can't remember because when you're, when you're invoking, I can't remember if, it, if you're invoking the Martian or the, any of the Martian spirits in general, or if you're making use of like planetary cameo or anything like that. Yeah. Then they actually recommend to not use iron because of the, that same yeah. thing. They're kind of, they don't like the iron. They fear the iron. Mm. So even a martial spirit doesn't really want you to um, slash him with a sword. Mm. The thing about the sword is you can reach beyond the boundary of the circle. Yeah. I, I have made, um, I, I never attempt to go beyond the boundary of the circle. I'm not interested in causing that kind of damage to myself. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so you need you need some of the equipment and uh, I, I won't go into details, the other things you need. You yeah. then definitely need the right incense because mm. spirits do have a sense of smell. Mm. It's like the the uh, ancient Egyptian temples. They forbade anybody to come in who had eaten fish recently mm. uh, or a garlic. And, in fact, if you've smelled anybody badly cooking fish or somebody who's – or just rotten fish, you know it's an appalling smell. Yeah. yeah. Spirits do not like that. So if you wanted to get rid of a spirit very rapidly, you'd open a just tank. just burn some very bad smelling stuff. Yeah, asafoetida is the popular one to get rid of. Yeah, it reminds me because doesn't um, doesn't I, I think it's in the book of is it book of Tobit? I think Solomon uh, burns is it like a, a, like catfish entrails to get rid of Asmodeus. Entrails, the same exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, so what? Whatever physicality the spirits have, they definitely have their sense of smell mm. and they definitely can hear because right. invitations can affect them. Mm. Um, I don't know about touch. I've never been touched by one. I don't particularly want to be touched by one. Yeah, I, I imagine. Well, it would be difficult if you're inside the circle, right, because they can't get inside anyway. Elifus Levy allegedly got touched by one and he had a frozen arm for the next couple of weeks after that. But, you know, that's, that's, that's hearsay. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if I'm talking about senses, what's your take on how you hear them or how, like, how they speak? Like, so, like, is it like a physical voice that you hear, or is it one of those things that oh, you see a lot again in all the chaos magic like ideas, where you'll you'll hear their voice inside your head as if it's like your own thought, or is it like a physical sound? I, I got a quite quite distinctly different um, sound inside my head. Mm. Yeah. 
um, which would then tend to suggest it's all psychological. But sure, I, I have never heard one physically. Uh, right. I have other people I've worked with who say that they can hear, but I'm not sure about that. Mm. Um, but communication in words happens, and it's not like it's not like I just had a thought about something. In fact, I've tried doing things like concretely thinking about mixing concrete whilst listening to the spirit or eating food whilst listening to the spirit. It doesn't matter what I visualize, the sound comes over the top. Mm. Uh, and so I've long since stopped trying to, to do that. Yeah. In your experience, with, with, I guess, with evoking different entities, do they have different voices and different sounds that they come through with? Yes. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, some of them are rather scrambled in their speech, and some of them refuse to talk. They just stand there. Uh, and yes, I've had visuals um, mute. And mm. so I find that then you charge them with what you want them to do, and you ask, Do you accept this? Do you vow to do this? And there will be some external phenomena, like mm. something will drop from the ceiling, or, you know, and by something, I mean, it could be. A piece of rubbish could be anything, but there will be a concrete response. Yeah, something. Yeah, do. yeah. Usually, I think I'm trying. I'm, I'm thinking back to my own my own evocations. I think the two the two biggest ones, um, or the two biggest indicators, environmental indicators, or maybe one, one is uh, that I've seen that for me indicates that a spirit is present. Is one there is some kind of lighting fluctuation in the room. And it's not so much like a, like a physical light with like a light switch, but it's just like this, like the. I'll tell you what it is. Something, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like something just like it, it either brightens or darkens the room. Sparkling air. Yes. That's what I see most frequently. Like, yeah. It doesn't even, it's not thousands of little pinpoints or anything, but the air just becomes sparkly. Yeah, it, it's just brighter. Uh, I'm glad you have had the same experience. Yeah, and then the other one that I usually hear is usually when, or around the same time, or not so much at the end of the ritual when I'm charging them, but when they are starting to appear, is a sound. The best way I can describe it is it's not so much a singing bowl. It's kind of like a bell sound, oh, like yeah. a tinkling. You're absolutely right. That um, um, shows up when... That, that, that's usually at the beginning so when they when they first go like after i've repeated either the first or second conjurations we're doing if we're going by the, the lemegeton um usually around that sort of time there'll be it, and it's one of those weird sounds where it's like the more you focus on it the more distant it gets well i was just going to say the word distant it sounds as if it's happening down the other end of the street or something but right it's... like in, in like in another room it's like a really quiet tinkling bell sound that's what yeah no oh, so that's really that's really weird Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, these these things are real. So the fact that you've had the experience and I've right. had the experience is not that we, we both invented the experience. It's that they actually happened to us. And right. And this is and this is the thing I want to point out. Bless us. Me and, me and Dr. Skinner have never met before. We've never had this discussion before. And neither of us knew that uh, we have, like, that we shared these experiences. Right. Like, like, again, like we don't know each other. This is the first time we've met. So this is really interesting. Yes. And and I'm sure there would be other things. Because, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And with regards to the academics, well, another thing that my chemistry professor, father-in-law, once said, it sounds to me like these guys are chemists who've never actually touched a test tube. 
Well, in terms of magicians or, or spirits? Academics. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. They're talking right. about chemistry, but they've never touched a test tube. He said, yeah, in his field, uh, it's known who are theoretic magicians, theoretic chemists, and ones who are actually practical chemists. Yeah, it's the whole debate of being like armchair magicians and like you can't, uh, whether you can call yourself an occultist unless you actually practice. Unless, and if you don't, you're probably more of a scholar. Yes. But, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's a difficult. It's it's, it's one. I mean, it's it's one of those things you can either like. I I always find it really hilarious because you know when you when you have to battle that always constant part away with people going, well, magic's not real or witchcraft isn't real, and it's just like I always I love to go back at people when they come at me with, with that, and I was like, okay, have you actually tried it? As in, have you actually done a ceremony? Have you actually tried a ceremony ritual where you've done it at the correct time, you've burned the correct incense, and done all these things? And no one ever has, right? They just make the assumptions not real. And then when you ask them to try it, they're like, "Well, why would I try? It's not real." It's like, do you, do you see do you see the problem I'm having here, right? It's just, that's, the, that's the mindset. Worse still, oh, I can't try it. I might be possessed. The right. There is. Possessed by what? If it's just fantasy, you can't. <laughs> sure, right. This is the thing. Or like, and again, and even if you go in the more like, even if you go into spiritual circles or modern spiritual circles, you know, people are always in that mindset of doing the occult or working in the occult opens up negative forces. It opens up, you opens you up to darker forces. And I was thinking about the other. I was thinking about this the other day because you know, we even with Misty, right? As, uh, because I'm teaching courses on occultism, I've had my fair share of people telling me that I'm a black magician, that I'm, I don't know, sacrificing goats or doing some other weird stuff, right? Or that oh, I'm practicing black magic. And it's like, you look at you look at occultism, you look at magic in general, it's like, sure, am I, am I going to sit here and tell you that it's completely safe, that you're not, by, by doing a ceremonial ritual, you are not opening the door to some very powerful, probably very dark forces at times? No, absolutely not. You absolutely are. You absolutely are. You're opening the doors of some very, or can be very terrifying experiences. But at the same time, while it opens the door, ceremonial magic or high magic also gives you the power to put them down. It gives you the power to bind them and control them and make use of them to do things. So it's like, and people don't want to have that discussion because I think this is the one of the biggest aspects of magic is that it is a very amazing tool for self empowerment. You're not you're not reliant on other religions. You're not reliant on gurus for things. You go and have your own experience, and right? you don't have to read it from a book. You can go and summon these entities yourself and see what happens with them. You know, people don't want to have that discussion. So, uh, yes, teaching magic that is very difficult. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, especially over Zoom. You know, I would much rather be doing it in like an actual, an, an, an actual space, right? a physical space. But you know, we, we work with what we have, I guess. <laughs> Well, Zoom is, is, I mean, Zoom is great. We're having this conversation because right, sure. I would not have necessarily, where do you live in? Where are you located? Uh, I'm in Kent, so I'm about half an hour south of London. Oh, right. I didn't, I thought you were in America. No, you're here. No, I'm here. I mean, I'm in England. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But uh, we can have these conversations. And so it's one of the, the few advantages of COVID mm. that uh, it's pushed ahead the, the remote um Remote working. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an interesting one. I guess we can start wrapping up soon as well. Uh, have you ever done any rituals over Zoom? No. No? Okay. So I was going to say, because this is an interesting one. I've had, especially in, in, in when I've been teaching or when I've been, or when I've been in class, when we've done like group ceremonial, group ritual. Um, there's never anything ceremonial because I wouldn't do that over Zoom anyway. 
um, but other like littler rituals and that kind of thing. Uh, there is an interesting uh like a discrepancy that happens with zoom where every single time i do a ritual or in some way the zoom lags out or there's some glitch on people's computers and things like that like the magic somehow does affect the tech it's just really funny um, um but, uh, it depends way, way back when there was reel-to-reel tape recorders mm. i desperately tried even with the best equipment to record rituals and and like you say almost inevitably the thing would fuck up yeah, and at one stage, um, because uh, one of the university guys who ran their sound labs for languages, he made one sound lab available to me, and then he was part of the operation. We did a four-person mm. um, evocation, and he was—he had the, the best equipment at that time running, and it just failed to record. Yeah. Uh, you know, so yes, an- another shared experience. Mm. The, yeah, these, can, like these things can work on work on the tech or whatever. I mean, you see it, you see it in horror movies and stuff all the time. But like, you know, you get like was it more like electronic voice phenomena and things like that? If you set up cameras or anything. I mean, have you ever have you ever done that in your practice? Have you ever filmed any of your rituals to see if you've got anything? No, I got I got past that before. Um, handheld video cameras came into. Ah, I see. Right. I got gotcha. you. Have you? Um, yes, I, ha- I have filmed rituals before. Um, and I have some. I have some on my hard drive, but I've got it's a lot of the time because you know when you go into a room and you have candles lit and stuff like that. Unless you have like a night vision camera on, you're not going to pick up a lot of things anyway. Hmm. Um, I have got one or two times. I have got the kind of shimmery, sparkly thing mm-hmm. happen. Uh, on camera, uh, which has been pretty fun. It, it's it's always it's actually one of the best, one of the most clearest times uh, that I had that happen. I was working with PGM, and I, I was work, I was doing a working with Aphrodite in it, where I, I was kind of evoke, uh, I guess evoking Aphrodite in manner of speaking. Um, and what was really interesting is I, I, I the the main sort of indicator of her presence, I guess you could say, like the theophany of it, um, was that the entire room just kind of sparkled and it was it was kind of weird because like it was all, all of this kind of dust or what looked like dust kind of like shot up around around the circle that i was in but, but what was really interesting is that the bright dust stuff was only inside the circle it wasn't outside of it which was really weird and then i i snapped it on picture and then what's even funnier is i went back to the pgm afterwards and about three or four lines down it actually says one of the indicators of her presence is a, is a, a noticeable brightening of the room that you're in. So you go back to you have you have these experiences. You go back to the to the text, and then they, and then you it confirms it. Recorded there from somebody else, yeah, right. And it's like a thousand years ago, and it's it's yeah, it's 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 insane. It's it's insane to think about that these are consistent practices, and it's the same thing as um, you know, you you obviously we find a lot of a lot of spells in the PGM that involve like engraving. Hecate or something on, on gemstones or, or lodestones or anything like that. And then we go and then in archaeologically speaking, there are tons in the British Museum. We actually have them. We've we've we found them, right? All of our like, actual big magicians who have inscribed. And what's really cool is you flip the stones over and they're inscribed with Actiophis or Ereshkigal or Mene or anything like that, which are all divine names for Hecate in, in PGM. And it's like we actually have physical evidence for this stuff being practiced, which is insane. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't doubt that these are practicing magicians' records. Mm. Is in a way a definition of grimoire, isn't it? The practicing magicians' records. Yeah. Rather than um, uh, 
third-party description of what might have happened. Hmm. Yeah, because so they are they're, they're written. I think that's that's the thing where because when one of the challenges that we have when we're reconstructing magic is again a lot of when we when we try and reconstruct it, the general viewpoint is to try and find the things that were written by the magicians themselves. Because the problem we have with Gnosticism, where all of our you know, a, 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 at least before the discovery of Nakamadi, the vast majority of our texts are all uh, anti-Gnostic propaganda. So you have yeah. to work our way back. So then, because of all the book burnings and all the suppression by the mainstream church, however you feel about it, um, you know, we don't have a lot of the magical things. So really, the only way to work through it and reconstruct these things are by using the grimoires, which are written by the magicians themselves. Performing the operation. Yeah, probably, a lot of time probably even while they're performing, especially especially any of the ones that have um like have sigils written in or anything like that. There's a good chance if you even if you look somewhere at the Libra, like the Libra Spiritus or the Book of Spirit, that kind of thing, a lot of them they were actually they were written like while the procedure was going on because you get this kind of like I guess what we say like an astral imprint of the of the sigil and then you kind of trace over it. And that's what gives that's what gives them the, the signature or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then that's part of the binding. Mm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. All right, yeah. All right, I think we can probably call it that. I think we're, how long will we be going? Nearly nearly two hours, actually. Ten minutes, ten minutes over. Um, so, yeah, this was great. This was an amazing discussion. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, Steve. I enjoyed um, sharing previous experiences. And uh, and you've done the work. You've learned the Greek. You've, you've yeah. performed the stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, you get, you get that. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I won't lie to you. My Greek is a little rusty by now because I haven't really practiced since since leaving academia. Um, as much as I'm trying to sort of reconstruct the PGM stuff, but um, yeah, I think I, 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 if I had my way with with, with you know properly teaching people, I would do a class on ancient Greek before I introduced them to the grimoires. Um, but you know, again, that takes. I, I know not everyone has the, the the dedication or the background in order to be able to do that you know so it's its own thing but you could you could create a three-year university course with the necessity of knowing latin and greek oh don't don't, don't tempt me Mag- magical university don't tempt me Stephen. it's gonna happen at some point <laughs> yeah yeah it may not be called hogwarts but it, it... no we, we can figure out we can figure out some kind of name for it but you know we'll see how it goes Okay. Well, listen, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. Mm. And uh, the difficulty was not keeping it flowing. The difficulty was stopping it from continuing. Yeah, that, that, that tends to be the case when, when, you, when, you, when you get started, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we, we can stay in touch. Um, and, you know, if, if we have another episode or something or we need some advice on the ceremonial stuff, I can tr- uh, drop you an email. Yeah, and vice versa. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right. Thanks for coming on, Steve.